Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 86 for the 2nd 3rd of September 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is Mars being murdered. This is a claim put forward in various flavors by various people, but specifically, I'm going to talk about the idea of John E. Brandenburg. He claims that the detection of Xenon-129 in Mars' atmosphere is evidence of a massive nuclear explosion, and that the most likely source of that nuclear explosion was a nuclear war either sourced on the planet or launched on it from space. That's really the basis for his claim that Mars was murdered, Xenon-129, although there is a tad bit more to it. As has become somewhat norm on this podcast, I'm going to let him explain this in his own words. I have a few different versions of him explaining this, and I'm actually going to use a clip from the Dreamland internet radio show, also started by Art Bell, but now taken over by Whitley, Aliens Had Their Way With Me, and I remind everyone of that in every interview, Streber. simplest hypothesis was that Mars was like Earth in the past. So we were looking at a whole range of scientific data gathered by the Viking expedition, not just the pictures, but also you know sampling of the atmosphere, sampling right. of the soil, and we found a real anomaly, and that was that the xenon-129 in the atmosphere was incredibly elevated over any other sample. I mean, you can sample the solar wind, and there, 129 and 132, uh, the two main isotopes of xenon, are are the same. And xenon has like five stable isotopes, so it has a nice fingerprint right. of processes. So you, you sample the solar wind. You sample xenon from meteorites. It's all xenon-129, 132 are in balance. You sample Earth's atmosphere. It's in balance. And you sample like Jupiter's and apparently it's in balance. So you have all of these, and, and also uh, Venus. So you have all of these samples from around the solar system, but you sample Mars, the Xenon-129 is two and a half times the level of Xenon-132. And this, when I showed this to some nuclear weapons specialists that I was working with, they, they one of them just said, oh my God, it looks like there was a, a big explosion there. And Nuclear it took explosion. a while to find out, but you find out when you delve into secrets on Mars, you start running into secrets on Earth. Xenon-129 is produced in two types of explosions. One is supernova, and the other is nuclear weapons explosions. It's a fingerprint. It's a smoke. It's the gun smoke of a violent, fast, nuclear process it doesn't it doesn't even get made in nuclear reactors very much it's only in a nuclear explosion like a hydrogen bomb an atomic bomb um and it took me a while to figure out that even though this was in the open literature it was considered uh one of the things that uh, uncle sammy one of the cards uncle sammy keeps close to the chest because Right. He like it, they monitor the xenon 129 in the atmosphere all the time to see if anyone's setting off nukes. Right. Secretly. So we found out that the 
xenon 1 to 29 on in the Martian atmosphere is indicative of a very large, very violent nuclear explosion. And John, you kind of have only two ways that could happen. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, one plausible way, which I did get to a scientific conference and propose, was that there was a large natural nuclear reactor on Mars that went unstable and went uh, kind of did a Chernobyl. Um, the other is that it was an airburst from uh, outside of Mars. It was a technological thing. And uh, the only problem with the large nuclear reactor problem uh, is that this, this occurred on Earth. There were natural nuclear reactors on Earth operating in Africa. Uh, there's every reason to believe they could have happened on Mars. However, this one would have had to have been very large and gone violently unstable, and it left no crater because... There was, yeah, there's nothing on Mars that would suggest the existence of such a thing, and yet it would have left a very substantial mark. Absolutely. If you, Unlike an airburst. The gamma rays, the gamma ray maps of Mars in, um, uh, thorium and potassium, and you can look them up on the internet, and they're in the color section of the book, show a big red spot of activity. Right. Heightened activity. And this one turns out to be about 500 miles to the west of Cydonia. So, John, you're saying that in the past there was a nuclear explosion on Mars, and you're a man who is in a position to know because of your scientific training. Now, that suggests it was technological that this was a mechanical device that exploded, not something natural that's incredible appalling all right so to recap the chain of logic is one the viking landers observed an overabundance of xenon 129 relative to xenon 132 that's relative to what we see on earth according to brandenburg part two is that xenon 129 is only produced during big nuclear events part three is that it could be natural like what happened in africa or it could be unnatural, ergo Mars was murdered. Part 4 is that additional evidence are hotspots of thorium and potassium on Mars, which he also links to this event. So, as with any claim, let's go through step by step. First is Xenon-129. It's a stable isotope of the element Xenon. According to good old Wikipedia's Isotopes of Xenon and Xenon pages, the natural abundance of xenon-129 on Earth is about 26.4% of all xenon. The ratio of xenon-129 to 132 is just slightly less than 1. Oh, and xenon is a gas, and it comes from a long line of nobility, but it got really, really fat and heavy. With that intro, now to the claim of it being on Mars. From what I could find, there is a December 1976 paper in the journal Science, the preeminent science journal in the world, entitled The Atmosphere of Mars, Detection of Krypton and Xenon. The third sentence of the abstract states, The ratio of xenon-129 to 132 is enhanced on Mars relative to the terrestrial value of this ratio. The abstract goes on to say, some possible implications of these findings are discussed. 
Now, to be completely honest, I was surprised. I did not expect this to pan out, given perhaps some of my more recent podcast episodes, David Sarita. So, what Viking found is that the ratio of Xenon-129 to 132 is not 0.97. So again, 129 is just a little less than 132 on Earth. But instead, on Mars, the ratio is about 2.5. It has large error bars, but it is significantly more than on Earth. But that's as far as I can follow Brandenburg, for a couple of reasons. Well, actually two. First, I can't find anything about Xenon-129 being produced in nuclear explosions. In supernova, sure, they produce pretty much everything. They're an alchemist's dream. But not a nuclear weapon. The only stuff I could find on the production of Xenon-129 is from the decay of radioactive iodine-129 into Xenon-129. Iodine-129 has a half-life of about 16 million, with an M, years, meaning that within about 160 million years, so 10 half-lives, less than 0.1% of the original amount of iodine-129 will remain, meaning that all of the iodine-129 originally part of any planet will have decayed by now into Xenon-129 unless you're a young Earth creationist. So again, problem number one so far is that unless this is top-secret knowledge, or Google has completely failed me, Xenon-129 is not produced in nuclear bombs, which pretty much is the foundation of his idea. It's possible that he got fooled by the term radiogenic Xenon-129 and thought that that meant nuclear reactor. Radiogenic just means that it's produced by radioactive decay of something else, in this case, iodine-129. It's also possible that his actual claim, even though he's never actually stated it in any of the interviews I've heard, is that it's iodine-129, and that's what's produced in a nuclear explosion, a nuclear bomb. And since that iodine-129 decays into xenon-129, then that's evidence of iodine-129, which is evidence of a nuclear war. So, to sort of repeat that, because it was a little convoluted, he might be saying, even though he's never actually said it, that we see Xenon-129 enhanced on Mars, Xenon-129 decays from Iodine-129, Iodine-129 is produced in nuclear bombs, therefore the Xenon-129 is evidence of a nuclear bomb. It's possible that's what he's saying, but I don't really want to make his argument for him, but it is one possible way to save his idea. Sort of. But the 16 million year half-life of iodine-129 means that this would have had to have happened hundreds of millions of years ago for there to be no iodine-129 left and for it to have all decayed. Which is sort of what he claims. He claims this happened maybe half a billion years ago. Possible, I suppose, and I have heard stranger things, if anyone familiar with this podcast, then you know that I've heard stranger things. But the second reason that I stopped following Brandenburg's ideas at this point is for the same reason that the Lawrence Livermore National Lab stated. There are a lot of possible geologic reasons why Xenon-129 is more abundant relative to 132 on Mars than on Earth. One is that they formed in different places in the solar system. The science article points out that some types of stony meteorites have ratios of 129 to 132, 
of 4.5, or as high as 9.6. In other words, 4 to 10 times more than what we see on Earth, which is also much higher than the Mars value. So one possible way to explain the issue on Mars is that it was inundated by these types of meteorites, or meteoroids, or meteors, or asteroids before they actually impacted. It was impacted by these, and then they outgassed the xenon, and so it enhanced Mars' ratio of 129 to 132 xenon. That's another way of explaining it, and it's actually somewhat plausible, as opposed to Mars being nuked. Another model by three authors, Musselwhite, Drake, and Swindle, from 1990, suggests that the iodine originally incorporated into Mars was outgassed after the formation of the atmosphere, and into the atmosphere, but that iodine was incorporated into the crust, while xenon, being a noble gas, and so not really being able to be incorporated into other molecules, just sort of stayed in the atmosphere. Then, lots of impacts happened in the first about 500 million years or so of Mars history that eroded Mars' atmosphere, significantly reducing all of the isotopes of xenon pretty much evenly. Meanwhile, the iodine-129 in the crust decayed into xenon-129 and then very slowly outgassed. This is as opposed to Earth, which would mean that because we have plate tectonics, all of that xenon-129 produced from iodine decaying would just be recycled into the crust and buried into the mantle. Voila, Mars' atmosphere is enriched with xenon-129, and we can explain it this way. No nuclear holocaust is needed, and this fits with everything else that we know about how planets work and various other things. The only small issue for this is the timing, given the fairly short half-life of iodine-129. Because of that timing issue, others have come up with other models for how Mars' atmosphere could have been enriched in xenon-129. A popular model was proposed by Swindle and Jones in 1997. It proposes that Mars started not with an asteroid-like composition, but an atmosphere like the solar wind. This allows for a contribution from plutonium-244, derived xenon-136, to be present, which I guess somehow helps the models more accurately produce the xenon ratios observed. Yes, I did just say plutonium. Plutonium-244 is a very heavy isotope of plutonium, and it has a half-life of about 80 million years, and it's plutonium-240, not 244, that's used in nuclear weapons. Plutonium-244 is actually the most stable isotope of plutonium, and it's still found in nature, and it's not abundant in nuclear reactors, although some is produced in nuclear explosions. So again, while this could be sorta kinda used in a very roundabout way to support his claims, it's hard to get there from what we know. And he doesn't actually make these leaps of logic. He doesn't actually go through this process and say this is what happened. It's not impossible, but it's really, really hard to do. So at the very, very least, from this discussion of Xenon-129, the conclusion that Brandenburg made, that it's only produced during big nuclear events, therefore a big nuclear event happened, is not true. It's actually not produced in nuclear events, except supernova, which I wouldn't really consider a nuclear event from the common usage of the term, but it can be produced as a byproduct of what is produced 
in nuclear weapons or reactors. But again, he doesn't go there. So step three of his train of thought, that the Xenon-129 could be produced by a natural nuclear reactor, was what he proposed to the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, also known as LPSC by those of us in the biz, back in 2011. Yes, he actually did submit an abstract about this, and he keeps submitting abstracts to scientific conferences about his stuff. But my point in bringing it up is not to discuss this idea on Mars of a natural nuclear reactor, but on Earth. I was first introduced to this idea as an offhand remark by someone when I was in grad school, and I didn't believe him at first. But yes, indeed, nuclear reactors can happen on planets naturally. This happened in Oklo in Gabon, Africa, about 1.7 billion, with a B, years ago. It lasted for a few hundred thousand years, and it averaged somewhere around 100 kilowatts of power during that time. To put that into context, my Mac setup from 2008 that I'm currently running on is using about 0.35 kilowatts, or about 0.4% of that reactor. So, it's not a trivial amount, but it's also not gargantuan. How this happens is kind of actually pretty neat, and it was first predicted in 1956, and the one in Africa was discovered in 1972 by French physicist Francis Perrin. And I'm sure I butchered that name. Please, no one from France, email me and yell at me. What happened was that a large deposit of uranium started to accumulate groundwater. Water acts as a neutron moderator, slowing down fast neutrons, making them into thermal neutrons, so slowing them down. And these slower neutrons are then capable of sustaining a nuclear chain reaction of uranium-235. So uranium plus water and a natural nuclear chain reaction can take place. Periods of the water boiling away, the reaction stopping, the water coming back, the reaction starting again happened, and lasted long periods of time each. What let this happen about 1.7 billion, with a B, years ago, and why this probably can't happen today on Earth, is that uranium-235 had an abundance of about 3.1% relative to all their uranium there. The rest was uranium-238, which isn't fissile. The 3.1% is also around what we enrich uranium to today to use in nuclear power plants. The reason that this can't happen naturally on Earth today is that uranium-235 decays faster than 238, having a half-life of only about 700 million years versus about 4.5 billion years. So the natural abundance of 235 will slowly lower relative to 238. Today, it's only about 0.7% relative to 238, as opposed to the higher 3.1% about 2 billion years ago. So that's why we can't really have this happen today. It's just there isn't enough of the fissile uranium-235 relative to 238 today for this to happen. But I just kind of thought that was kind of a neat aside to make. The final piece, part four of his evidence, is that he claims that there are maps of potassium and thorium of Mars, and that this somehow makes it clear that there was a nuclear explosion or something, although I'm really not sure why. Potassium is a common element, and while thorium might be rarer, and it's theoretically could be used in thorium nuclear reactors, 
He doesn't really give a reason why either of these are important, and I couldn't find a reason why these would indicate some sort of nuclear happenings. Yeah, they're they're sort of correlated in space on the planet, as in, like, they, they happen together, they're most common where the other one is, but as far as I can tell, it's just sort of like, hey, these two are sort of together, and they form a red spot because that's the color scale these scientists use to display the intensity. So, yeah, a, a nuclear explosion happened. I mean, that that's about as far as I can get with why he says that these are important. Um, I did read a very, very long paper, 20 pages, with over a dozen authors. It was published in 2007 that used the thorium and potassium as evidence actually for water carrying rocks to the lowest portion of the planet this being draining into the northern hemispheric ocean. And that's where the largest concentrations of potassium and thorium are, so they said this is probably evidence of a vast northern hemisphere ocean on Mars. I mean, that that's about as far as I could get with using thorium and potassium for anything. So that's really about it for Mars being murdered. As far as I can tell, he's making a basic claim with a couple of lines of real evidence, but that evidence doesn't actually imply what he says it does. Also, I've managed to go through, what, the last 21 and a half minutes without mentioning that he's a face-on-Mars guy. It's actually how he got started with this Sidonia, face-on-Mars, pyramid, all that crap. In fact, I used a coast-to-coast clip of him back in my two-parter at the very beginning of the year on the face-on-Mars. I don't mean to poison the well by going into this, but now that I've shown that the evidence really doesn't support his ideas, uh, at least not nearly as strongly as he claims, then I think that I can get a bit more into context about the guy himself and his other claims. So, he is a face-on-Mars guy, and along with that, he's a conspiracist about UFOs and government cover-ups, which you kinda have to be if you're a face-on-Mars person. He also makes some factual claims which are demonstrably wrong. This is gratuitous to Mars, but for example, he claimed that Napoleon's soldiers shot off the nose of the Sphinx with a cannon. In true yes-man fashion, George Norrie, who was interviewing him at the time, replied, That's right. Too bad the Arab historian Al-Markrizi, um, an Arab historian who wrote in the 1400s, as in several hundred years before Napoleon, he wrote that it was a person in 1378 who removed the Sphinx's nose. So again, gratuitous to Mars, but it's kind of like, you know, you're just wrong. Um, And actually, one more thing. Brandenburg claims in pretty much every interview that I've heard of his that he was the guy who originally came up with the idea that there was an ocean on Mars. I was, in fact, the uh, first person to propose at a scientific conference uh, the ocean of Mars, the paleo-ocean of Mars. Which is now pretty much an accepted reality. I know, but they don't give me any credit. It's oh, no, they're not going to give you credit, John. No, 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 I'm radioactive because of Cydonia. Right. Um, John, we don't give you credit because you don't deserve it. He proposed this in 1986. I can see why he may have been confused, because that's roughly when this was hitting the mainstream literature, but I found several abstracts and papers and maps dating at least to 1985, the year before him, suggesting that an ocean existed on Mars, and those papers from 1985 were not his. 
So this episode actually took longer to write and record than I expected. That's probably because Brandenburg is not your typical pseudoscientist. He actually knows mostly what he's talking about, so long as you ignore the UFO and face on Mars stuff and the arrogance of claiming to solve problems that Einstein couldn't. But with this stuff, it took a fair amount of research on my part, searching and reading through a dozen papers to find out the little details that point to why he's wrong, as opposed to it being something obvious, which is normally the case with topics I talk about on the podcast, like, for example, Venus sprouting from Jupiter. But that's also perhaps the more dangerous kind. He seems like he knows what he's talking about, even though it seems kind of crazy to a normal person. But for someone to actually investigate why he's wrong takes a lot of searching and a lot of specialized knowledge. I'm actually a little surprised that his ideas haven't caught on more in the pseudoscience circles that I follow. Alright, this episode is actually running a little bit longer than I expected, and I have two grants due in five days, and this episode's already coming out a day late. Uh, So we're going to go actually right to the puzzler, where sometimes each episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was, is there ever a time when the moon is up that, with modern photographic equipment, You can capture both the moon and hundreds of stars and have both visible and properly exposed in a single shot. If so, when? And if not, why not? Thanks to Johan, Steve, and Warwick for writing in some very, very lengthy and interesting answers. And Warwick was correct, Johan. Taking an HDR photo is cheating, since I said that this had to be done in a single shot. An HDR photo requires several shots to then be merged in the computer or the camera's processor itself. Unfortunately, the prize for the correct answer goes to someone who did not leave their name, but they posted in the comments section of the show notes. Quote, Yes, the moon and stars can be photographed at the same time during the peak of a lunar eclipse. End quote. And that's really it. The only time that you can correctly expose both a full moon and thousands or hundreds of stars in the same single shot is during a total lunar eclipse. The moon is very dark during that time, but it's also up, it's at night, and it's also full. And the photos, which I've done, look kind of neat. It was a little bit of a trick question and trick answer, but I think that I've mentioned it before in a much earlier episode, and I still thought that it was kind of a an interesting little teaser. Uh, with that said, there is no puzzler for this episode, but there are going to be a couple of announcements. So first off, thanks to the folks at the Telescience Museum for having me down to give a public talk last week. There, uh, there might be a video made available. I'll let you know if there is. Second is that I have finally secured an interview with Robin Knopp, a researcher on the forefront of modeling the moon's formation. The interview should take place on October 4th, and it should be posted for episode 89 for October 11th. If you have questions about the moon's formation that you'd like to submit to me uh, for use, or possible use, for the interview, you can send them through any of the normal various methods, some of which are finding me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, 
on Facebook under Exposing Pseudoastronomy, me personally on Twitter as Dr. Dr. Astro Stu, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudoastro. In other announcements, the next episode might be a few days late. Um, as I mentioned, I have several grants due next week. And then I'm having a party on September 21st, which is when I normally write, record, edit, and post the podcast. Uh, so it might be a day or two late. Also, I am near the final completion of finalizing my plans for Australia. The places that I will likely be traveling to are Melbourne, Tassie, also Sydney. So um, if anyone happens to be in those locations and is interested in doing some sort of meetup possibly, uh, go ahead and send me an email. This will be for mid-December through mid-January. Specific dates of exactly when and where I'm in each place are a little bit vague. Tasmania will probably be a few days before and a few days after New Year's, and Sydney will be after that, and Melbourne will be middle of December and then again middle of January. Uh, So, with that in mind... That wraps up this topic for the 86th edition. Try saying that in one syllable. Sixth. It's almost impossible. Anyway, 86th edition of the Exposing Pseudoastronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email, podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, the blog post of the episode, or the comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. You can also tweet the podcast, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and I know I'm way behind on feedback as usual, but if you happen to also have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. Every review helps increase the visibility of the show and find more listeners so that I don't have to go to the street corner and beg. 